Welcome to another episode of Pod for Good, a podcast where we learn from those doing good in Tulsa, why they care, what we can do, and most importantly, what you can do. Pod for Good is produced and edited by Ranine Productions and can be found anywhere you get your podcasts. I'm your chief philanthropod, Jesse Ulrich. And I'm your vice admiral philanthropod, Chris Miller. Today, we speak to the executive director of the George Kaiser Family Foundation, Ken Levitt. Talk to Ken about GKFF and how they pivoted during the pandemic. We talk about some of their plans for 2021, and Jesse and I try to convince him to tackle our trigger issues. Enjoy. We are very excited to have Ken Levitt on the podcast today. Ken, how are you doing? I'm doing great. It's good to be here. I've heard a lot about Pod for Good, followed it a little bit, and I'm glad I finally made the cut. <laughs> if we knew you were so willing, we would have asked you a lot earlier. <laughs> I got nothing but time. No, no, Jesse, don't seem desperate. Say, uh, yeah, well, we're glad that you finally made yeah. the cut. So, Fair point, fair point. <laughs> I was actually I was researching your background, and I wanted to start off with a question that you probably can't answer, which is, is there anything you can tell us about your time as the general counsel for the CIA? Well, there'd be a few things, you know, I do tell folks, and I don't know whether you guys remember a journalist in town named Jim East, who asked me before I, right before I went to the CIA, he said, hey, hey, Kenny, I just, you got to tell me three things, find out three things while, while you're there. Did Oswald act alone? Is Jimmy Hoffa really buried at Giant Stadium? And, and last, did aliens land at Roswell? And I, I really thought about those questions when I was there and I, I came back and I said, Jim, I remember your questions. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you, Oswald did act alone. Jimmy Hoffa is in fact buried under Giant Stadium and I can't comment about aliens <laughs> of Oswald. But it was a great experience. It was a little bit random that it happened for me. I, I had worked for David Bourne in the U.S. Senate when he chaired the Intelligence Committee and I became very good friends with the staff director of the Senate Intelligence Committee named George Tenet, who ultimately became the CIA director, director of central intelligence. And I helped him with some confirmation hearings and the speeches and things just as a volunteer in a way. He was going through the process and he asked me to come on board. And I, I had a, a very exceptional experience, had some fun and worked very hard and have a lot of admiration for the people who do that work. I mean, that's the three questions everyone would ask. And at least with, with the alien <laughs> questions, according to that one Israeli official, like we, we know now aliens have contacted us. Yeah, so. exactly. Exactly. I rarely do talk about these matters, but <laughs> I was friendly with a guy who was in charge of the whole Kennedy declassification effort. Older guy, you know, it's not the job. Declassification is not the job where they, they put, you know, the young clandestine officers. They, this is the, where people who've been there 30 years go maybe for their last rod. He, he led the whole Kennedy review process. There was a statute to declassify all Kennedy documents. And he knew every piece of paper that was in CIA records, ones that got released, ones that didn't get released. And I, I did ask him about Oswald acting alone. And unless he was, you know, you can never trust anybody, especially in those quarters. But he did very uh, convincingly tell me Oswald acted alone. So that's, I go, I'll go to my grave with a pretty strong level of, of persuasion to that, that part of the three stories, at least that one we can all yeah. rest easy on. Yeah. And here's the thing. I don't think we want, no, we don't want to know the answer to the aliens question. So yeah. to more present matters. So you're executive director of the George Kaiser Family Foundation. 
And anyone who listens to this podcast, our audience, except for maybe our 80 listeners in Belgium, will know who the uh, who and what the George Kaiser Human Foundation does in town. But I was thinking about your role as executive director and what I know from executive directors in other big nonprofits, which is their days are mostly meetings about what's happening at the thing they run. And I was wondering if that if that was the case beforehand and if it's still the case during the pandemic where it's just huh. from 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 meetings with people in person to zoom meetings about what's about what's happening right right well i do i do notice you guys are following a lot of the great work going on throughout tulsa and and, and that uh, a number of our efforts and partnerships are are often central to your broadcast and program which i really appreciate and it's great that you guys are are paying some attention and, and bringing some uh, community conversation to those things I don't know. I mean, I'm not a major meeting guy. I mean, I, I like to be pretty out and about, but yeah, I'm, I am in a lot of meetings. I think most people kind of imagine that a job like mine is very much like reviewing proposals and meeting with people who are requesting funds and stuff. That's actually, I do almost none of that, which is great because that would be kind of unpleasant for for me. That's not really how I like to do. But what's great about this experience and and what I like about the philosophy of our foundation, it's pretty proactive and problem solving in in nature. And I'm not saying that we solve every problem or we even have the right take on every problem or anything like that. But we we do try to ascertain what, what the biggest challenges that we face in the community with regard to issues like inequality and issues related to social justice or increasing our level of community engagement and then and then come up with a handful of ideas about how how we might address a situation or improve a dynamic and then and then yeah we're talking to people all the time about about what they think what what's going on in the community that we could invest in or what's happening in other places that we should check out and see whether it would make sense to maybe lend a, lend a hand to, to bringing that effort here so it's a lot more proactive than it is reactive and I think that's probably a better place for philanthropy to be although you know there are some folks who you know have a hard time with philanthropy being proactive and they're concerned about it which is which is also fair. And so we try to try to listen to that, listen to that level of comment and walk, walk uh, humbly. And when we're trying to address problems or think about solutions that we certainly don't have all the answers, but we try to talk to folks and learn, learn about good ideas that are going on and how we might help. So along those lines, I'm curious, has there, have you ever, has anybody come to you with a program idea that was really interesting and off the wall, but that you loved, but you just knew you couldn't do or what, what's maybe the most interesting idea that has come to you that you weren't able to go with? That, that yeah. we didn't do? There are probably a lot of of them. I'm thinking about a, uh, a friend of mine who, and I'll say his name, he's a pretty uh, creative thinker, Mike Bosch, who identified or was excited about a, a, a program that kind of is in the world of sobriety, but also into dancing. Like, And they have these crazy dance parties every morning. It's like, I can't even remember what it, what it's, but it's like really at dawn, there's a, there's a dance party going on. Everybody came to town to, to meet us and talk. Nobody was shaking hands or just hugging each other. It was very, uh, very, very zen. But we've got a mission on related to intervening in the, in the early cycle of poverty. And we, we, we try to, we try to keep our, our mission front and center. So certain things might be great, but it could be a little, little far 
a field. I get a lot of, because we bought the uh, Woody Guthrie archives and later the Bob Dylan archives, I, I have been pitched a lot of archives. And we're really not in the mode of acquiring <laughs> archives. That's not our thing. But whether it's, uh, I'll, I'll leave them blank. But there, there was a period where I got a lot of calls with some cool archives, very cool archives. But you know. they're like, oh, you're interested in archives? We got archives. <laughs> yeah. And so on this on this podcast, our listeners will know Chris and I have a couple of, of issues that trigger us into anger because they stop Oklahoma and Tulsa from bettering itself. Chris, I'll let you say yours and I'll say mine. So mine is a very exciting one. It's how municipal taxation works and how cities are limited and how yep. they tax based on the state constitution. Mm -hmm. And Jesse, yours is? Mine is just the sort of racist nature of the federal highway system. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it's amazingly these... Not because we bring them up, because we would anyway, but they they actually do come up in almost every conversation we have. And so we were just curious if there are GKFF programs or program officers working on either of our two uh, trigger issues. Well, I'm not probably not directly, but one of the constant kind of tension in our work is this question of, about our relationship with government. And it, it's multifaceted. On, on the one hand, we believe that, that many of the problems that we are working on whether it's poverty or housing or beautification in the city, are ultimately, and in most places, often major government responsibilities. So we like to think, and I, and I could point to some pretty encouraging signs where, these thing, where this did happen, where we're making some early investments, trying to prove out a concept that when we think we're being successful, say it's reducing the rate of female incarceration or reducing the rate of, of, of uh, unplanned pregnancies, that partners in state or federal government or local government will join us. On a related note, there are certain issues that we think about as major areas of concern or weakness where we think uh, philanthropy or a charitable organization is not the best place you know, to address the problem. And one of those, uh, and we ask, it's not a simple question or answer, is in transportation. The issue of inadequate transportation in this community is that the root of a lot of our major social issues of inequality, poverty, workforce, etc. It's somewhat intimidating and possibly not even appropriate for a foundation to tackle the issue of a, a city's transportation system. Yet, yet there may be some ways that we can play a role, whether it's advocacy or help create a plan that the public then buys into or, or debates etc. I'm interested in learning more about racism and the federal highway system. I'm reading a, a book right now, I'm reading it slowly, about racism in, in U.S. housing policy throughout the last century. The color of law, the color of law. It's really, really outstanding, very enlightening and very shocking for a person like me to quite understand better all the enormous layers of, of racism that really were promulgated by our legal system way beyond Jim Crow laws. I have to imagine that the that there's a lot to learn about federal highway policy. On the issue of local taxation, it's interesting. One of my colleagues who's on the board of the foundation is is often very exercised about this very same issue that being so dependent on sales tax is a complete anomaly. I don't know that there's I mean if there's any other city in the country of our size. I'm not sure I, I can name it. I'm not sure there is one. Our, the county takes advantage of generally increasing property values over time and sales tax fluctuate immensely. I have wondered about whether GKFF 
uh, to embrace as a policy initiative the question of what they call county home rule to try to try to amend the constitution and get the legislature to buy into a situation where at least the two metros Oklahoma City Oklahoma County Tulsa City Tulsa County could have the right to uh, adjust their taxation system it's one of those deals where it hasn't happened for so long that sometimes you say well maybe there's a reason it's just you know it's just not it just can't get done but I'll take this as a uh, good prodding to at least be asking the question. We're still a fairly rural dominated legislature and it's hard to make big headway on, on a question like that until you can, in, until that, that changes. You actually brought up a uh, part of a question I was going to ask you, which is because uh, GKFF partners so much with, with the city and, and the state on things, but the city and the state, those are transparent organizations that are respo- that are directly elected by the people and GKFF is not. How do you work in such an environment? Because that, that opens up critiques, even if those critiques aren't true, because GKFF isn't a, a public institution that puts their board meetings on Facebook Live. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a couple points. It's a fairly, very legitimate area of conversation. First of all, I w- would you know highlight the, the primacy of government in addressing the issues that we Address. I mean, e- even with our level of investment, it's a drop in the bucket as far as addressing the major challenges around inequality, poverty, lack of basic resources in our community and state. So I feel like our best role is to try to catalyze and, and help others explore certain kinds of interventions, whether it's in early childhood education or access to birth control or in alternatives to incarceration like women in recovery or still she rises Tulsa, providing legal services, and really be very active with our public partners about bringing to them our learnings and trying to, you know, tempt them to make uh, investments based on the evidence that, that we bring forward on, but even, even in that limited way where we, where we work, I do hear and concur with the, with the issue that, with the question or, or framing or, or, or worry that here we are working in the, in the public sector in meaningful ways, yet it's not an elected body. So I, I've been working much more strenuously to, have community conversation, whether it's even in, in our COVID world with, with Zoom events. And I'd like to think that at our foundation, we're, we're a couple dozen people. Everybody lives in their own little, you know, private island in certain respects. But on the other hand, we're out in community or serving on boards or meeting people. And I get feedback, not always positive, pretty regularly which I think uh, we try not to be in an ivory tower and we, we try to roll up our sleeves in conversation. So that's a very human answer to a question that's more philosophical, but that's kind of what, we, what I, I hope that we can be at all times. And then, you know, we fail, we stumble, but that's what we, we aspire to be. Well, and um, I mean, you brought up COVID, so we have to ask, I think we're required by law to ask every guest at least one question about it. Can you tell, talk a little bit about how, you and GKFF in general kind of pivoted with the pandemic going on and what you see kind of the role in your programs going forward now that we're starting to get to the point of having the vaccines and stuff like that. Yeah. Seen a lot of heroic people working under extraordinary circumstances to try to meet needs. I was at Iron Gate on Friday and it's quite an emotional experience to, you know, see the, uh, the cars line up and the work of, 
people at Iron Gate, they don't have volunteers like they used to because it's not safe. So, you know, they're doing their best to make stretch their budget. I've, I've been a lot to um, Vernon AME, to the food deliveries that, with, that Pastor Turner's led, been at a large Hispanic church where we helped with food delivery and cash cards. It was an opportunity where we did a pretty specific pivot in that we are pretty focused on the 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 search for strategies and partnerships that we believe intervene in the cycle of poverty and are not always completely dedicated just to just alleviating poverty this was a situation in american society and in our community where you could talk about intervening in the cycle of poverty but we had an immense amount of suffering taking place so there it was appropriate to double or triple or quadruple our giving in the social services sphere, which we did. And I think that was entirely appropriate. So whether it was the food banks of the world or food delivery and housing and homeless support, again, it was just probably a drop in the overall bucket. But I I think that was, I'm glad we did that. Once the federal funds rolled in, we were able to help provide good advice or advice to, to public actors about those funds. And our Modest amounts were less important than the than the overall CARES Act money. It changed us philosophically and got me into the trenches a few times just to kind of help and, and do do my very small part. Interestingly, our the operation of our foundation, I think many people are experiencing this, while some people are completely and deeply impacted, in, incapable of doing their work, incapable of keeping their restaurant open or their small business. I did find it fascinating that our foundation is just a kind of work environment. We went Zoom like everybody else, and our staff meetings probably are more efficient today not being here than they were when we were here, which I can't believe I'm saying because I used to really think it was crucial that everybody show up physically. So anyway, it's, uh, so that's that's on a not important note, but it's been interesting. Well, and so going forward into 2021 with GKFS Mission, now that the pandemic has happened, it hopefully over the next couple of months, people will all get vaccinated and we will be past this. The repercussions of this are going yeah. to affect issues and organizations that GKFF funds and supports. And I'm wondering, are you waiting for a, a moment when you're like, OK, now we can we, we will look back on the damage that has been done and how we need to tweak the programs we have? Or are you waiting until like it's fully done so that people can have some distance from it? Well, we're probably living it still day to day by day into a, a large degree. But we recently we had a board meeting just last week, and it was interesting. It really wasn't on the agenda to discuss in any meaningful way, but there be there arose a pretty spirited conversation a, around public education and the K twelve world. Maybe maybe I think we had a, maybe a, a gift to make or grant to make in the area of after school, the, the opportunity project, which is great great work in Tulsa with, with TPS and others. But just the staggering impact of what it has meant to have school online across our community, especially for all sorts of families that are left behind in many ways already and probably probably were just negatively impacted in an extreme way because of lack of Wi-Fi or just turbulence in the house. And, you know, how can kids focus? They don't have the same support that other kids do. So what is a strategy? What are other community? Typically, we don't invent many great ideas. We, We try to learn about what other people are doing. And 
So what, what are other, other communities doing to, to try to deal with fade and, and the, the losses that, that have taken place? Now, on the other hand, I, I, I also want to learn about what, what learnings have educators experienced? What creative approaches have certain districts taken? What has Deb Gist learned that might be a tool for the future? What level of change might be taking place in higher ed? K-12 education, I'll stop droning on here in a second, but when we talk about technology and early childhood education, like birth through five, six, seven, most of the folks who we work with are horrified. There's no answer in technology. It really needs to be parent, teacher, you know, child interaction and the serve and return of talking and reading and singing. And it's just, the science seems to say that you can't really create it on the screen. That may be a, a more difficult conversation, but, but there may be some things we can learn about utilizing technology, helping teachers leverage technology to reach more kids, et cetera. So there's, there's got to be some things to learn, but we're early in, that, early in that process. I imagine a couple of high school teachers who would have loved to be able to mute Chris and I <laughs> remotely. Yeah, that would have been very handy yeah. for them. Yeah. We are six-ish months away from the, the commemoration anniversary of the Tulsa Race Massacre. And I know that GKFF is connected to a lot of the organizations working around that. And is that one of those special cases where you sort of go beyond the stated mission of GKFF and something is so tied into civic engagement that you're like, we have to, we have to be involved in this? Yeah, I think it was pretty obvious that this time cried out for a greater degree of focus on issues of, of racial justice, really whether or not the centennial came. I, I think there's a confluence of, of forces. I, I'd like to think that our foundation was working on issues of and, and cognizant of issues of racial justice from our inception. But the murder of George Floyd and and it wasn't a, wasn't a solitary event by, by a long stretch. But I think that fundamentally changed our perspective in certain ways. I, I think that Tulsa's original sin, to some degree, occurred 100 years ago, and we live its impact. And I think I, I actually, I actually, I heard a comment the other day that was sort of framed in a different way, which, which maybe, I don't know, what's that, what's that word? Talk about strength, you know, speaking from strengths rather than weaknesses. I, the artist, uh, Rick Lowe, who was retained by the, as part of the Bloomberg Foundation grant for the art, for the art project in Tulsa, I was able to ask him, as he was commenting about the global interest in this anniversary and in the Tulsa story and in, and in Greenwood. And I asked him really, it's like, kind of why? What explains the intensity of the interest? And he, he said something that I think was important. He, he said you know, he, that he thinks it's the resilience of the people who lived here. It's not just the crime that took place, but the, the story of, the, of people who rebuilt and remain committed to this very day about keeping that narrative alive, those who are seeking you know, justice for what took place. And that strength, in a way, is also captured the world's interest. So I, I think it's, it's an exceptionally important moment. We're pleased to play a small role on the 1921 Race Massacre Commission and making some investments here and there to help. I will say, I went to law school. This is sounds real name droppy, but it's relevant. I guess I'll do it. But I'm, I, I, I went to law school with a with a, uh, a guy who's now in the U.S. Senate, and 
I had emailed him a time or two over the course of his eight or 10 years in the Senate, but I had emailed him maybe a year ago. I haven't heard and I didn't hear back. I was actually suggesting how he vote on a certain matter. And I never heard back, which is you know typical, but I just get an email today from him that he had had a conversation about Greenwood. He went to the website. He saw that I was you know involved in something and he wondered, uh, he wanted to rectify the fact that he hadn't, he'd been to 48 states, but not up to Oklahoma. He wanted to bring a delegation of senators here at the time of the anniversary to learn, listen, and be part of that experience. So I thought that spoke volumes to me. Also, it's really sort of, it's pretty remarkable. We, we have a lot of guests on who are in some way connected to either activities working towards the centennial or just working on the issues that the centennial is going to bring back up. And the conversation is always like, yes, the centennial, the anniversary is important to get us talking about it. But like the important things are what what we're going to do about it going forward, because a lot of those issues still exist. And we shouldn't just pat ourselves on the back for commemorating this Tulsa sort of original sin. I mean, I guess maybe original sin point two. If we go back far enough in Tulsa's history or Oklahoma's, Oklahoma's history? I, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there are others. There are others. But yeah, I couldn't agree with that more. It, it's not a kind of let's have some sort of halo experience for a day or a weekend or even a year. But it's a, a recommitment or a commitment to a lot of work that I'd like to say is 10 or 20 years. But it might, it might, it's, it's probably a generation or two. Early in this podcast, we used to ask people who were on like if. If money wasn't an issue, what problem would you want to fix? And in, in your case, we have to rephrase that question a bit, which is what is, what have you found to be the, the speed bump that stops progress from happening most often? Cause I, I have my opinion of what, what I think stops things from happening, but I, I would, lo- I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. Well, a lot of these problems are pretty intractable and, and pretty difficult and an amount of money doesn't do it. It's instead, it's, it's a lot of sleeve rolling up, a good model, a good strategy, and most important, which is really kind of getting to your answer, you know, a great leader on the ground that is committed to the work and in and in working in an effective way. I, I'm very, you know, I, I, I like to think about some areas where a problem seems gi- ginormous, but I've seen progress over a decade here. One is our rate of female incarceration in Tulsa County, which started when we began. It was higher than Oklahoma County, and now it's you know half of what it is in Oklahoma County, and it should be half again, and hopefully will be. But that's changed a lot. And I think of the work of my colleague Amy Santee and Mimi Tarash and, and Gail at Family Children Services, and, and now the work at Still She Rises. Kimberly Butler and, and Laura Bellis on the work of access to contraception and teen pregnancy. I mean, our rate our rate has dropped dramatically. I think it's the work that people have done. In fact, I just saw some data today of, across states all over the country and the rate of contraceptive access by teenagers. And I think of all the states, the highest rate of increase in the last five years was Oklahoma. And I really think that the work in by organizations like the Take Control Initiative you know, have, have been indispensable to that. If you don't have a good good leadership and a, and a partner that's genuinely committed in a deep, deep way, I mean, you cannot get anything done. Uh, and there has been leadership prior to Dr. Gist, prior to Dr. Ballard, 
at Tulsa Public Schools. And, you know, it just, there was no way to make an impact because the leadership was there. So much of all of this is really what somebody else I've learned a lot from calls kind of blocking and tackling. So you got it, you, you know, it, it, you can waste a lot of money doing something poorly, but you can use less money doing something effective. Raj Chetty talks about this with regard to housing and housing vouchers that, that we spend maybe $45 billion a year. He thinks with some just some minimal investment in helping to coach and mentor and support people when they're looking for where to live so that they can help them, empower them with knowledge to make better choices about where to use their vouchers, you can get an enormously better return or, or chances of success for that family. So it is always interesting to, sometimes it really isn't, it's often not the amount of money. It, it, it's interesting. You you sort of, your answer is similar to mine. You just phrased it differently, which is my issue has always been the, the problem with fixing a lot of these problems is people, is mm-hmm. people's own assumptions, people's own agendas, people's own both competence, incompetence, and leadership or lack thereof. And you, you can have, you can throw all the money you want at something and it never go anywhere if the people doing it are not, are not thinking about it from a sort of a, a numbers-based thing or open to new ideas and open to challenges of the work they've done in the past. Right. So. Right. Yeah. There's also that kind of interesting issue that, that uh, this sounds kind of academic, but, but like in capitalism, if you have a company or a product that's successful, like the market brings resources to you in the social services sector. The mere fact of being successful does not mean that you're going to be enormously well-resourced. That's really about what, can, can that, can that project find a public partner or a major foundation or a lot of donors? It's just, it's hard to get scale in a way that the business in the private sector, well, you know, scale is kind of built into how it operates. So that's a complexity. So what you're saying is businesses are run differently than social services or nonprofits. Well, I'm not really, I'm not really making the case of like, Hey, nonprofits aren't businesses run better than government or businesses run better than nonprofit. But I'm just, I'm just saying that successful businesses or successful products, successful innovation in capitalism, resources come to it because people want to invest in it for a, for their own return. Whereas you have a successful nonprofit, they're still usually kind of got their tin cup begging for, for help, even if they're kicking butt and having incredible success. Yeah, because well, that success is proof that they can do it on those small amount of funds, right? It's like a it's a self fulfilling success story, I guess. Right, there's uh, a little bit of that. Well, and and the, I know there has been a, a trend recently with certain nonprofits being encouraged to run more like a business, which works for some nonprofits, and for other nonprofits, it seems to have sometimes catastrophic impact to that organization. So do you, do you see that there is a fundamental difference or are there nonprofits that can run more like a business? I've been impressed by a lot of nonprofits who have excellent business skills. Now, there are a lot who don't and many, and, and those, those entities often want more training and knowledge in management and, and finance, but they're maybe under-resourced to, to gain those skills. But yeah, they're, and, and I, I think that that's something that we have tried to help some nonprofits accomplish is a greater level of, of business style sophistication. But I don't know. I've also seen a lot of businesses who don't really run, run like businesses. So there's a lot of learning that everybody can do on those fronts. I have been in private law practice and in 
private business, but I, I've had to learn a lot about finance and business principles and investment, et cetera, in my job. And it, it doesn't come naturally. You gotta, you, you gotta have time and, and energy to study and be taught it. So that's been, that's been something I've enjoyed growing in. Well, and, and you bring up uh, one, I think it's interesting point is that beyond the money that GKFF provides is there is a certain amount of, of mentorship and coaching that GKFF provides to a lot of the organizations that they support. I hope so. We're actually a fairly small organization. I mean, there are efforts that we that we sponsor that that are bigger, like the Gathering Place. Well, and there are a couple hundred people who, who great people who who work there. But as far as the as far as the operation of the foundation, generally, it's a couple dozen folks. So, but I I, I think of the people like you know Annie Van Hanken and others. I do think they enjoy very much the opportunity to work closely with with partners. And I don't know whether they'd say they mentored them, but there are deep bonds of day-to-day collaboration. It's not a, hey, we write the check, slip it under the door, let us know 12 months from now, and we'll, we'll see whether it's time to renew. I mean, it's, it's a very intensive set of relationships and interactions, which I think brings a lot of joy to our work and I hope, I hope to our partners and maybe some headaches too. This episode's really going to upset our one troll on Reddit who just every time I post an episode just talks about how I'm in GKFF's pocket. And so, I mean, there's another reason to have you on just to annoy that person. It, it could be three people, but I'm pretty sure it's one person posting under three different yeah, accounts. Yeah, so that's okay. That's okay. During this pandemic, right, we, we, we've been asking our guests what, they, what they've been doing to sort of keep their sanity and to relax when they are not working. Because it feels like we're all working all the time now because our offices are also our homes. And so we've been asking people what's been there like, Chris and I are big pop culture nerds. And so we always ask them like, what's your pop culture comfort food? Like, have you been watching something or reading something or doing something new to sort of relax during COVID pandemic? Well, I haven't been great on that front and I need to, I need to be better at it. I do enjoy my work a lot. And even if I'm just puttering around uh, and think I'm working, I, I spend a lot of time looking at my email and reading articles and I'm working, but I'm kind of, I'm kind of relaxing too. I spent a lot of my energy fretting about the election and the election that doesn't end. And today the electoral college was heard. That was very consuming to me in the hours I wasn't working, which I'm not really proud of, but, but it was, you know, enormously bandwidth sucking. But I will say that I have started watching more shows. So my, my wife, Janet, has already seen three seasons of The Crown. So I took it upon myself to, to watch three of them, get three of them done, which I'm two more to go. And then we can watch the, the fourth season together. And then I've seen a couple others. I saw my daughter cannot believe that I told her to watch Emily in Paris, which I only saw a couple of those, but so some on the pretty silly side, but I, but I've, I, I've enjoyed, I've enjoyed doing that. One, one good Israeli one called Stissel, which is that. pretty interesting. I recommended that to somebody and I could tell they were like, after two episodes, they were like, yeah, no, I, I'm not, I'm not going to watch <laughs> this anymore. Thanks for the idea. So I, I have, I, that's probably been my indulgence are the Netflix and Hulu. Thank God for that. I mean, like I know Google services shut down, like we're having problems this morning. Like some people couldn't get on YouTube. Some people couldn't get on Gmail. I was like, if Hulu and Netflix both went down (laughs) at the same time for an hour, I think we would all just riot. So at this point, especially if it happened between 5 p.m. and 11 p.m. Before we let you go, we also just want to cover one last thing, which is, are there, I know we've covered a lot of subjects, 
But are there anything that we haven't hit? Any big upcoming projects you want to talk about or any upcoming events, virtual or otherwise, that, that you want to throw out that, that we can share with our, with our audience? I think in the upcoming year, I'm really, I'm really looking forward to the fourth Educare opening up, which is an important opportunity to, to serve another couple hundred families with high quality early childhood education, our, our work in providing legal services to, to folks who don't have access to, to sufficient legal resources at places like Still She Rises and investments in the public defender's office. I'm looking forward to seeing those expand. We've got this Bob Dylan Center. Is We're going to see that open up, I think, in the next year. We talked about the centennial already. I think that's very important. At the legislature, I, I'd like to see, we've been fighting for a long time for restoration of the earned income tax credit. It's going to be hard to do that in a year where revenues are down, but but we'll be fighting for that. I'm interested in in conversations taking place about limiting our ability to, to pass constitutional amendments. I think that's a really bad idea. Uh, a lot of the progress Oklahoma's achieved, some step backwards have been by, by vote of the people, but mainly they've been great step forwards. So I think that'd be a terrible idea. I'm not criticizing them. I like the person who actually is proposing it, but that's not a, that's not a good idea. We'll be active. We'll be active there on on issues of, of early child education and 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 criminal justice reform. So those are those are those are important. We didn't win the the state question eight hundred five. That would have been an important step forward in criminal justice reform. But I I don't lose all hope because I've lost some state ballots initiatives before, but it helped engender a conversation that ultimately created some success. The effort to pass a penny sales tax for education failed, but then actually the education, the, the, the legislature actually took a better course and, and than that. And uh, so I was excited by that. Similarly, so I, so there may be still a chance on some important criminal justice reform issues and we'll, we'll work on that. Obviously the Oklahoma legislature is always, that's always a, a, a challenge, but, but when we got to, got to uh, be optimistic about and try as hard as we can to make progress. Well, yeah, they, they have to squeeze so much into the three months they work. <laughs> Which, and actually, it's longer than that because they're still like catching up from past sessions from past years. So it's like it just keeps rolling on. I'm like, how about just work for six months one year? Ooh, anyway, right, right. But right. We, we'd, have to get, we'd have to get an amendment passed, I assume. Honestly, I go back and forth on whether it's a bad thing that they have limited time to put up bills. Um, so... <laughs> Right. There's a Will Rogers quote about that, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I just want them to have enough time to read the bills. However however long time that is, let's do that. Ken, uh, thank you so much for um, joining us. This will be our last episode of 2020. And I think our fourth post-election where Chris and I are both in much better moods <laughs> for, for our conversations and not just like worried about the future of humanity. So... So thank well, you. And thank you guys. Yeah. And thanks for paving the way for podcasting and our, and our community. It's, it's actually, it's the wave of the future and you guys are ahead of the curve. Thank you. See you guys. I hope you all enjoyed our conversation with Ken Levitt. As we all know, the George Kaiser Family Foundation does a lot of great work in town. I don't need to tell you where to find them, but just in case you don't know, you can go gkff.org, check them out on Facebook or follow Ken or Brandon or any of the great GKFF employees on Facebook. I hope you all got through 2020 the best you can and that 2021 will be better. I can't see how it could be any more worse or stressful.
I hope you all have a wonderful New Year's and holidays. And if anyone is still listening and you happen to be in the marketing department of your company and you're looking for a way to give back to the community, Pot for Good is always looking for sponsors. If you want to find out more about being a sponsor of Pot for Good, you can email me, jesse.ulrich at rant9.com for more details. And hopefully, for the last time, Tulsa, get it done and wear a mask. Thank you.